today we are in uh, Romans, starting Romans chapter 7. Um, and uh, even though it is a chapter division, it really is a continuation of the things that Paul has been uh, presenting to us beginning, actually clear back at the beginning of chapter 6. Um, so, but it is an important chapter. Uh, it's a chapter that a lot of people think a lot about. I was uh, out at the lake the other day uh, uh, studying. I was sitting there actually in my vehicle looking over the lake and I had a big old commentary of Romans in my lap and my notes there beside me and, and some guy walked up to my vehicle uh, and, um, uh, you know, he's parked over a ways away and he came over, walked over to my vehicle and so I rolled down the window and, and he wanted to ask me some questions about hiking trails or something, but I happened to be wearing that t-shirt I have that a friend had given me that's, uh, it's written in Greek, preach the word, it says in Greek, he'd picked it up at the seminary and given it to me and, uh, and so this guy's standing there and he, he looks at my t-shirt and he says, now, this kind of a real kind of scraggly guy, you know, and so he looks at me and he goes, is that Greek? <laughs> I went, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I says, it says, preach the word. And he kind of looked a little startled and I said, it's from the Bible. He says, he says, I, I know. And then we both at the same time said, it's from Timothy, you know. And uh, so interesting. Uh, but in the course of the conversation, uh, you know, I just told him I teach a class here at Trinity and, and uh, he's apparently new to town. I don't know if it's been five years or longer, but <laughs> five or 40. Five or 40 yeah. uh, so anyway, he's new to Norman. And uh, so he wanted the address of the church and I, I gave it to him on a business card. And, and uh, but uh, uh, so I told him that we were going through Romans, you know, and, and he said, where, you know, and so I told him we would be starting Romans seven, you know, and right away he identified with Romans and said, oh, yeah, that's a, I like that chapter, you know. Uh, so it's a chapter that that uh, people are very familiar with. And uh, as you'll find out as we go through it, it's not necessarily an easy chapter to uh, interpret, to understand. So we will wrestle with some difficult issues as we go through chapter seven. But they are uh, they are vital truths. Uh, as is that I, where you'll end up someday with scraggly beard wandering around. That's <laughs> pretty much where I am now. Just, you just yeah. <laughs> okay, can we move on? Yeah. <laughs> my wife never made me shave. I did. My son tried to, but that was another issue. So. But at any rate, so we are in Romans chapter 7. Last week we looked at uh, the last part of chapter 6. I think we, we looked at uh, about verses 16 through verse 23 of chapter 6. Uh, and because it really does all flow together, let's pick it up. I'm not going to go all the way back to the first of chapter 6, but it really actually starts there. But let's pick it up in verse uh, 15 of chapter 6. And read down through the first six verses of chapter seven. You'll see how it kind of all flows together. Uh, and uh, and then we'll review and, and go on from there. But at any rate, uh, or, or let's say let's start in verse 14. 
of chapter 6. He says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the ones whom you obey? Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you, to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, <clears throat> resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Christ or Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound to the law by, bound by law to her husband while she is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit to God or for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Okay, well, go back and look at that last part of chapter six from about uh, 14, 15, 16, etc. on down through the end of the chapter. And let's see, what can we remember that we talked about last week? Actually, I think last week we picked it up in verse 16, but anything stick in your mind from last week? And if not, we'll go back and do last week's lesson again, so. Anybody? Uh, because we're 
under grace now, not under the law. That just doesn't the free to go Okay, that's the, that's the big question he's asking. He says, because he's made the assertion now, we're, un, we're not under the law, we are under grace. So the conclusion is, since we're under grace, we can just go do whatever we want, right? And as David's pointing out, Paul's answer is no. That is not uh, that is not the case. You, you're, you're not just you're, you, you you're not just free under grace to just go do whatever you want to do. Why not? What's his argument? Today in society, we think of complete freedom as autonomy. And if you actually are autonomous from God, that in and of itself is sin. So you're either in sin, uh, the bottom line, you're either in sin or you're in righteousness. Okay, okay. Good. So you are, so, so we really only have a choice of two slaveries. We can be enslaved to God or we can be enslaved to sin, but there's no middle ground where we're just quote, free to do whatever we like. Okay, so the idea of, of, of uh, autonomy in being independent or free of God and free of sin at the same time is a misconception. It's not possible to be autonomous in that sense. Okay, so we, so we have to choose between being a slave of God or a slave of sin. What else? What does Paul... What does Paul know or what is Paul confident of with regard to these people he's writing? That at the moment of conversion, there was obedience of heart and gladness. Okay, okay. that way and that they had learned a body of truth or a catechism at the time of their baptism, which was immediate upon their conversion. So there was stuff that they knew. Okay. Okay. Uh, and of course, the, the premise of everything he said is that Paul was confident that they were in fact believers. And that because they were believers, these things were true. That they had become obedient from the heart to this form of teaching, this catechism, this body of truth that they had been committed to, that they had been in one sense turned over to, uh, and... Uh, and, and that and that their their desire towards that body of truth was uh, was uh, how do I want to say it that they, they that it was from the heart there was nothing coerced there was nothing reluctant about it but from their heart they wanted to obey the truth that was given to them at the point of their conversion okay anything else because of the culture at the time they were. Also very familiar with slavery. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Sometimes the slavery was, you know, the person themselves committing. Okay. So in some cases it was a volitional act to to commit oneself into slavery for whatever reasons, and there were several reasons why somebody might choose to do that to make themselves a slave to somebody. But that's a that was a a cultural reality that all these people were familiar with. So when Paul uses this example of slavery and of choosing whose slave you're going to be, uh, they're, they're, of course, very familiar with that in this, in this first century era. They're very, they're very aware of, of, uh, of how that could be. And Paul's point is, 
that before we were saved, we were slaves of sin. That's that that just, that just a given. There's nothing you can do about that. You were a slave of sin before you were saved. When you were saved, you were freed from sin and became, as he says, a slave of righteousness or a slave of God, a servant of God. That's what happened when you were saved. But does that mean now that now that I'm saved, that I could never once again live like I'm a slave of sin? You're shaking your head, Sarah. Why not? Okay, okay. And this is important for us to understand that the point that Paul is making all the way through Romans 6 is that though we have died to sin and we are now alive to God in the first half of chapter 6, and though we have been uh, freed from our slavery to sin and now become slaves of righteousness or slaves of God, even though that's true, we still are free to make a choice as to as believers, as to how we're going to live our lives. So on a daily basis, I can choose. Am I going to live my life like I'm a slave of sin? Or am I going to live my life like I'm a slave of righteousness? And if I am a slave of sin, or if I live my life today as though I were a slave of sin, I am presenting the members of my body. I'm presenting my facilities as a as a human being. I am presenting my my body, my arms and legs and eyes and ears and mouth and and my my gifts and my ability and my sexuality or whatever, I am presenting that as an instrument of unrighteousness or a weapon of unrighteousness when I choose to sin. But if, on the other hand, I exercise this new power that I have that was given to me when I was saved to choose to continue to walk as one who is enslaved or, uh, or, or bound to righteousness, then I am presenting the members of my body to God as, instrument, as an instrument or as a weapon of righteousness that God can use to accomplish His purposes. brings up that whole idea of being a co-worker with God and what God is doing. And that's what's available to us. Okay? So those are some of the things that we talked about uh, in chapter six, along that line, yeah. What's the interaction between this is calling us slave to God versus children of God? Because uh, mm-hmm. the radio preacher this week say something. He was talking about Paul calling himself a slave of God, but he said, you know, in the Scripture, God never calls us slaves; He calls us sons, the children. Uh huh. So how does that, I mean, what does it mean in the sense that we're a slave to God? And in fact, Jesus specifically makes that distinction at one point where he says, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you uh, sons or children. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's the key that when we get to Romans 8, we're going to understand what it really means to be a slave of God. And it and, and it has to do with something that will be introduced in the verses we're looking at today. The concept of walking in the spirit. So that, so that we are in fact, we are in fact slaves in the in the sense that we are obligated and bound to God, but the relationship by which He relates to us is a relationship of of sons and children. Does that make sense? Yeah. You have some thoughts on it? Well, I don't know. That slavery has, in a sense, like you said, a bad connotation. Yeah. 
not like God is an evil taskmaster. I'm only thinking enslaved in a sense means you're bound by the results that are going to happen to you. Uh, I mean, you uh-huh. don't do anything about the results. Mm-hmm. You're enslaved to sin. There's nothing you can do about the results of sin. And enslaved to God, it's, it's not that he's, you know, being a... Well, that's a good point, and that's in fact one of the things we brought out last week is that one of the issues that Paul's talking about is the results of this whole thing. So, so I think that's true. I think the other thing we should remember is what he says in verse 19 there in chapter six, where he says. He says, I'm speaking to you in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And so it's one, in one sense, Paul seems to be almost apologetic that he's using this, ima- uh, this imagery of slavery. Uh, uh, just a second, sir. Uh, this imagery of slavery uh, because, he, because he realizes what the negative connotations are. And so I think Paul in verse 19 is implying that he doesn't want us to draw from this passage these negative connotations that slavery typically has, too. So I think both those points. Sir? Yes, it was actually um, not unheard of for um, slaves to be adopted as a son. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, you know, then her was a fictional story. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's pretty. It was pretty common for that to happen. Yes, yeah. Pretty common when there was no son um, that a, a slave could be adopted. Yeah. So, yeah. You know that, and, and they certainly would have been aware. In fact, we see that clear as far back as the story of Abraham. When Abraham doesn't have a son, and God makes that promise to Abraham, and so God says to him, "Well, what about Eliezer?" The you know, his, his, his main servant in his house. What about, what about if I give him the inheritance? So it's the idea of adopting him as a son. So, so, uh, so all those things are things I think that play into that. That's a great, great question, Mike. Well, let's go. Oh, yes, Gary. We were slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to God. The, the Christian who goes back and offers up their members as instruments of unrighteousness, is that... Mean that we're slaves to sin again? Yes and no. Because he says, how do you like that for an answer? <laughs> I'm going to run for office next week. <laughs> uh, he says, uh, in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves? of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So it seems that Paul pretty clearly is saying he's writing to believers. He's just made it clear he's writing to believers and he's saying, listen, don't you know if you present yourself to someone as slaves, you are slaves. So there is a real sense in which even as a believer, if I present myself to sin as a slave, yes, I am enslaved. So, so the degree to which I go on doing that in my life, I become more and more enslaved to sin. We certainly many of us probably have experienced that in our lives, even as believers, that we indulge in habits or ways of thinking or ways of behaving 
consistently over a period of time, the more we do that, that gets ingrained in us and it becomes more and more difficult to break out of that. The difference for the believer from the unbeliever is, there, is that at any point that the believer chooses to present himself as a slave of righteousness, he can do so. And that's Paul's point. Okay? So does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Okay. Also, the parable of the Okay. 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 Good. Great. Okay. Well, let's. Oh, go ahead. You're not going to let me go to seven, are you? You guys are afraid of chapter seven, I can tell. <laughs> I was thinking of the son slavery. He was he came back and said, you know, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. I was asked, maybe I can be a slave. Yeah. And as soon as he before he even asked that, you know, the father said, Look, my son is back. Yeah. It's almost like we've got to come as a slave. That's a great point. Yeah. 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 That's a great point. Yeah. And. Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Good. Great. Okay. Well, let's pick it up in seven. And I want to look at the first six fast. Six. Uh, verses of chapter 7 as the Lord gives us time. Uh, let me just read them again to you. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound to the law by her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also are made, were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who, has raised, uh, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might be bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now I want you to notice something there at the beginning of verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brethren? Does that ring any bells? Meaning, obviously, it should. <laughs> Does that ring any bells when he starts out there in verse 1? Do you not know, brethren? Okay, verse 16 of what? Of chapter 6. What does it say there? Do you not know? Okay. Okay. And if you put on your thinking caps, there's another one. Where is it? Clear back. Early in chapter 6. 
Right? Verse 3, what does he say? Do you not know? Okay. So this is kind of a little clue that Paul gives us that, that he's kind of given us an outline. Now, I don't know if Paul wrote from an outline, but he's kind of given us an outline here. He's actually making three distinct arguments in relationship or in regard to the believer's relationship to sin. Okay. And in the first one, in back in chapter 6, in verse 3, he raises the question, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? And then over the next several verses, up through uh, about verse uh, 12, 14 in that area, he presents to us this argument that the believer's relationship to sin is that he has died to sin and he has now been raised to walk in a newness of life. So the first half of chapter 6 starts out, do you not know, brethren, in answer, in, in answer to that question, you know, shall we sin that grace may increase? He says, what do you not know? And then he talks about how we're dead to sin, alive to God, first half of chapter 6. Then he makes that comment about not being under the law, but under grace. And then the question comes up, well, shall we sin then because we're not under the law, but we're under grace? And he launches into his second part of his little outline, if you want to call it that, in chapter 6. So in the last half of chapter 6, instead of talking about being dead to sin and alive to righteousness, the last half of chapter 6 is about what? Being what or what? Being a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. So the first half of chapter 6 is dead to sin, alive to God. The second half of chapter 6 is slave to sin or slave to God. Okay. Now, in chapter 7, again, the same question comes up. And again, he says, or do you not know? So, so what we need to realize in chapter 7 is that Paul is continuing his argument from chapter 6. It has to do with our relationship to sin. And so when he says, or do you not know, brethren, and then he starts speaking about our relationship to the law. In chapter 6, it was our relationship to sin. But in Paul's mind, the subject of law and sin and death are all just interwoven together like this. You can't, you can't pull them apart. So whenever you talk about sin, Paul thinks about death. Or whenever you think about law, Paul thinks about sin. Okay? These things are all interwoven together. And what we're going to do in chapter 7 is figure out how it is that the law is so closely interlinked with the idea of sin and death. Okay? So that's what Paul's going to launch into in chapter 7. So all the way through chapter 7, we're going to be thinking about this question of the law. And we're going to have to think about it in the context of what Paul has already said in chapter 6. Now, in verse seven, in chapter 7 and verse 1, when he says, Or do you not know, brethren? He's taking us all the way back to the question that arose in verse 15. What, shall, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law? 
but under grace. And he says, may it never be, do you not know? So, at the very beginning of chapter 6, he proposed this question, what? Shall we sin so that grace might increase? And he goes, no, 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 no. And then in the middle of chapter 6, he goes, what? Shall we sin because we're under grace and under the law? And he goes, no, 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 no. And then he gets to chapter 7, and what's the question to which he answers no? I'll save you some time. There is none. There is no question to which he's answering no. So Paul's answer in chapter 7 is a second answer to the question asked in the middle of chapter 6. Okay? I want you to see that. His question in the middle of chapter 6 is, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? That was the question. The first answer is, wait. You were slaves of sin, but now you're slaves of righteousness. That was his first answer. His second answer has to do with our relationship to the law. The question has to do with, since we are not under the law, but under grace, shall we sin? Paul's first answer is, no, because you're no longer slaves of sin, but you are slaves of God. His second answer is, no, because you're no longer under the jurisdiction of the law. This is what happens. This is what happens when you are no longer under the jurisdiction of the law. So we have to understand chapter 7 is another answer to the question asked in the middle of chapter 6. Shall I just go on sinning since I am not under the law but under grace? So, if I am not under the law but I am under grace, what does that mean? What is it? What, what is it like to be under grace? What is, when Paul says we're under grace, or when Paul says we're under the law, what does he mean? And we begin to understand that as we look at chapter 7. So he says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. So once again, he's just building on something he's confident the Romans know. Okay, you know this. This is something everybody knows. What is it that everybody knows? That the law has jurisdiction over you as long as you live. Okay. The law has jurisdiction as long as you live. Or we might add, only as long as you live. That's Paul's point. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Now, there are a lot of things because you are a citizen of the United States and because you are a citizen of the state of Oklahoma and because you reside in Norman, Oklahoma, there are a lot of things that you are obligated to because of the laws of our country and the laws of our state and the laws of the city. Right? The moment you die, you don't owe anything to any of those entities. The moment you die, you are freed from the law. We know this, right? We know this. We understand this. And that's Paul's point. 
Paul's point to the Romans is, listen, people, you know the law. And there's debate among commentators. Is he talking here about the Mosaic law? Is he talking more about just the general idea of the law of God? Uh, what is he talking about? I think actually, personally, I think he's, using, he's, he's, he's doing both. He's referring to the Mosaic law, but he's referring to the Mosaic law as representative of the whole concept of the demands of God on our lives. Okay. And we'll explore this more as we go through Romans 7. But he's, but he's speaking kind of categorically here. And, and he's using the law of Moses as an example of the category of law. Okay. So he is, in his mind, he's probably thinking of the idea of the law of Moses. But you remember in Paul's mind, from clear back early in Romans, we understand that everybody has the law of God written in their hearts. And he makes that very clear in Romans. So, so even though Paul's probably primary thought here is the Mosaic law, he's using it representative of this law of God that's written in our hearts. Okay. Now, We are bound to that law as long as we live. But when we die, we're no longer bound to the law. And now he uses an illustration of what he just said. And the illustration is what? A married woman. woman. Okay. So you have a married woman. And she is bound by the law to what? She's bound by the law to her husband. And she is bound by the law to her husband as long, to quote our, our marriage vows, as long as you both shall live, right? That's how long you're bound. You stood up and you made a vow to your wife uh, at, at, on your wedding day. You made a vow to be faithful to one another as long as you both shall live. Implied in that is... As soon as one of you kicks the bucket, the other one's free. <laughs> now, he didn't say that at your wedding, probably. You know, you probably weren't really kind of looking forward to when the other one kicks the bucket. But that's implied, right? That's implied. When the other one dies, you're free. You can go marry another person. And that's Paul's point. So that he says in verse 3, continuing his illustration, he says, So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. By the law, as soon as she joins herself to another man, by the rule of law, she becomes a sinner. She becomes an adulteress because she has violated the law. Right? But, if, she says, he says, her husband dies, then she is free from the law. And she can go out and be joined to another man and she's not an adulteress. She's not a sinner. Why? Because death has broken that relationship she had with the law. And when death broke that relationship, she was then free to be joined to another. Now, that's the principle. That's the illustration that Paul now goes on in these next three verses to apply. But we have a problem. What's the problem? Well, yeah, before we get to the theological problems, what is the problem in Paul's argument here? 
Well, yeah, but he's yeah. That's beyond the the realms of his uh, illustration here. Yeah, he's not dealing with that issue. Actually, the woman wasn't free to seek a divorce, but uh, under the law. But but uh, there again, I'm asking a lousy question and trying to get a good answer. Uh, notice in verse four. Therefore, my brethren. You also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. So he makes the application, right? And the application is what? You have what? You died to the law. You have died to the law. Okay. Now, thinking about the application in connection with the illustration, who in the illustration corresponds to you in the application? Now, don't tell me none of you have noticed this problem in this argument of Paul's. Well, in the illustration, the other person died. Yeah, yeah. It's the wrong person dying. Okay? <laughs> and uh, commentators bend over backwards on this one. Okay? He says, he says, you're bound to the law until you die. Okay? And then you're not bound to the law. So, a person's bound to the law as long as they live. Okay? And then when they die, they're not bound to the law. And then when he gets to his illustration and his application, it's not the person who's bound who dies, it's the other person who dies. You see what I'm saying? So, in other words, we're talking about the wife being freed, but the wife didn't die. The husband died. Right? Gary? Well, yes. Exactly. And that's my point is what we have here is we have an illustration or we have an allegory. Okay. And when you are interpreting allegory or parables, parables and allegories are different, but it's the same idea. They're illustrations or ways of understanding uh, somewhat abstract truths. Okay, So we're given these illustrations in Scripture or allegories or parables. And when they are given to us in Scripture, they almost invariably are given to us with one point to make. So when Jesus teaches uh, the parables, oftentimes one of the mistakes people make in interpreting the parables of Jesus is they try to do what we call make them walk on all fours. Which means we try to find something corresponding to every element in the parable. Some spiritual truth corresponding to every single element in the parable. Okay, But that's not what parables are. Parables are meant to communicate one truth. And if you try to make a, com- a parable communicate more than Jesus intended it to communicate, you're going to misinterpret Scripture. Okay. So when you're interpreting allegories and parables and illustrations in Scripture, ask yourself, what's the point? And make that, make that correspondence between the illustration and the point that the writer is making or the speaker is making and then take that point and do with it what God wants you to do with it and don't work yourself over time trying to make some kind of correlation between every aspect of the illustration. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? Okay. So in this case, commentators get all worked out and some commentators even get derogatory of Paul. And Paul's so clueless, he has no idea how to write a good, good illustration. It's absurd what they say. Paul just has one point that he's trying to make in this illustration and the point is what? That you're no longer tied to sin. Because of? Because of death. Death breaks the bond to the law. That's his point. Whether it's the husband dies or the wife, that's not the point. 
The point is that death has severed the relationship to the law. And so when he comes to us and he applies his illustration to us, he says, you also have been made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So the same idea we got clear got back early in chapter 6, right? About, you know, when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into His death. So the idea is because somehow when Christ hung there on the cross, as the Father looked upon His Son hanging there on the cross, He saw not only His Son, but He saw you and me as well. And when that happened, I and you died to the law. Now, what is the work of the law? What does the law do? And in our course of our study of chapters 5 and 6 and, and now into chapter 7, we've talked about three different things at least that the, that the law does. What are, what are the things that the law does? Okay, the first thing that the law does is it reveals, I don't know if it's the first thing, but it reveals sin. So when the law says thou shalt not covet, it exposes to us that covetousness violates God's moral standard. What else does it do? It arouses sin. It incites sin. As he says there in verse 5, he talks about how our sinful passions are aroused by the law. So when we hear the law, we don't just go, oh, I'm a sinner, but we go, oh, I want to sin some more. Okay? As perverse as it sounds, that's our reaction. Okay? It arouses sin in us. What's some other thing sin does? I mean, the law does. Well, we can't talk about that, but, but I mean, what's what's an obvious thing the law does? It's supposed to supply some order to Well, yeah. It's another classic case of me asking a bad question. So, obviously, the law condemns us, right? The law reveals our sin, the law arouses our sin, and the law condemns us for our sin. Wages of sin is death. So the law, when I read the law, it not only reveals sin to me, it not only arouses my sinful passions, but it shows that I am under the condemnation of the law. Right? But when Christ died on the cross, and when I, by faith, came to Christ, somehow, God, looking upon Christ, saw me and released me from the law. So no longer does this law reveal my sin. No longer does the law arouse my sinful passions within me. No longer does the law condemn me because now I am seen in Christ. So before I was saved, Paul says, before Paul was saved, I was wed or joined to the law. And if I was joined to the law, I was joined to sin. 
And if I was joined to the law, I was joined to death. Now, Paul's going to ask the question here next week. Does that make the law sin? And he'll answer that question next week. Is the law sin? Okay, so we'll ask that question next week. But for now, let us just understand that before we came to Christ, we were joined to the law and there was nothing we could do about that. But when we came to Christ, when Christ saved us, we died to the law through the body of Christ. He says in verse 4, so that you might be what? So that you might be what? Joined to another. Right? So you have the wife. She can't be joined to another. Why? Because by the law, she's bound to her husband. But when her husband dies, she's now free and she can be joined to another. Now, when you and I, by the work of God, died to the law in the body of Christ, He did it for a reason. And that was to do what? We were wed to the law. Now we've died to the law for what purpose? To be joined to Christ. To be joined to Christ. To be joined to Christ. It's the same thing that we, that we saw in chapter 6. That there's not just the negative, you're dead to sin, but you're alive to God. It's not just the negative that you're no longer a slave of sin, but now you're a slave of righteousness. There's always this positive that accompanies the negative. And it's always the positive is the reason that the negative has been destroyed or done away with or ended. The reason we died to sin is order that we might live to God. The reason we were freed from slavery to sin is so that we could be slaves of God. And the reason that we have died to the law is so that we could be married to someone else. So that we could be joined to Christ. In order that we might bear fruit to God. Now, the reason... He did. Uh, he, well, let me say it this way: We were, we have been joined to Christ so that we can bear fruit to God. And when you think fruit to God, think Galatians chapter five: the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, etc., etc., etc. Galatians five twenty-two, twenty-three. Okay, think of that. Okay, that's why we died to the law so that we could be joined to Christ. And being joined to Christ, bear fruit to God. Because, he says, in verse 5 of chapter 7, when you were in the law, he says, he says, for while you were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of your body to bear fruit for death. So when you were joined to the law, when the law was revealing your sin and arousing your passions and condemning you as guilty, when the law was doing all that stuff, what was happening in your life? You were producing fruit for death. Think of, think of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. All those things he talks about right before he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. 
That was the characteristic of your life. But you died in Christ. You died in Christ to that in order that so that you can just kind of be free and just go on and just live your life just do whatever you want to do. No. So that you can be joined to another. You didn't die to the law so you could be a widower. You died to the law so that you could be joined to Christ. And when you are joined to Christ, then what does that mean? You now have the Spirit of Christ in you. And after he gets done with a long explanation about the law in chapter 7, we get to chapter 8, he's going to elaborate on this. So his mention in verse 6 here of the Spirit by which we now live is actually just an introduction to chapter 8. But he's got some other stuff he has to say before he gets to chapter 8. Okay? Because it's Paul. And I can identify with Paul. I always got more to say, right? Okay, so, so he's, he's, but that's where he's headed. And he's introduced this idea of life in the Spirit here in chapter 7, verse 6. And when he gets to chapter 8, it's going to, it's going to blow up in our face. You know, we're going to have all kinds of stuff about life in the Spirit in chapter 8. But as you walk out of here this morning, I want you to walk out of here as people who go, I'm joined to Christ. I am joined to Christ. He's not just that super cool dude that lived way back then. He's not even just the creator and sustainer who holds all things together by the word of his power. He's all of that. But here's the remarkable thing. That though you were a sinner under the domain of the law, He made you die the law so you could be joined to Him. So as you walk out of here, you're not just just somebody who's trying to follow some ethical code. You're a person who's joined to Christ Himself. So you don't walk anymore by the oldness of the letter of the law. But you walk by the newness of the Spirit and you bear fruit to God. So do we live in sin now because we're no longer under the law? No. We're under grace. What does it mean to be under grace? To be under grace means to be joined to Christ. To be joined to Christ means we bear fruit to God. So though we're not under the law, now we actually live holier lives than we did when we tried to obey the law. Because now, we're joined to Christ Himself. Okay? Well, next week, we'll go on in the next few verses in chapter 7.